Hi, this is Yolanda, and I'm continuing to read from the memoirs of President Joseph Smith III, 1832 to 1914. And um, we're on page five, continuing on from page four. Um, of the memoirs of um, Joseph Smith III's childhood and um, we're in the process of hearing about um, him playing with a family um, that has a, a boy who um, has a gun to shoot rabbits and um, we're just about to find out that his mum's not too pleased about this that, um... <laughs> so this section is called Discipline Mother made no objection to our visiting the Huntington children until she learned by some means that Alan was in the habit of taking his father's gun out with him when we were over there. Being fearful some accident might happen by which some of us might lose our lives or be crippled, she bade us stay away from the Huntington house, explaining as she did so that she did not think Alan, with his rifle, a safe companion for, his, for little children. <clears throat> the game was fascinating, however, and I soon wandered over to the Huntington home again. Returning rather late, I was questioned by mother, and had to admit that I had been out with the boys among the hazel brush, hunting for rabbits, and that Alan had carried the rifle. Thereupon, with the aid of a ready hazel switch, she promptly administered punishment. But the end was not yet. The next morning, she said to Frederick and me, her commands being upon me especially, since I was the older. Joseph, I will not say you must not go to Mrs Huntington's today, but I will say that if you do go, I shall punish you when you return. It is a dangerous thing to play with Alan when he carries the rifle, and I'm not going to be responsible for any harm that may come, so just remember what I tell you. <clears throat> Again, either forgetful or neglectful of the mandate, I ventured into the forbidden region and spent a portion of the day with the Huntington boys in the hazel brush after rabbits, staying late enough in the afternoon to see the little animals at play on the hillside and to hear the crack of the rifle. When I returned home, mother had company at supper and nothing was said to me about my visit to the Huntingtons. Hence, I went to bed thinking it had escaped my mother's notice and that I was safe from punishment. However, after the guests departed, I discovered my error. My mother found me and I received the punishment she had promised, applied vigorously enough to make me feel sorry I had undressed as I went to bed. When morning came, mother repeated her charge, saying, I will not say you shall not go to play with the Huntington boys while their mother allows Alan to take his father's gun with him to play. But if you do go, I will punish you, and I shall punish you harder and harder until you stop. Once more, the allure of the pastime seemed stronger than my mother's counsel and her efforts to deter me, and again I went to the Huntington's and spent the day with the boys and their rifle. When I returned, my mother punished me with such decidedly increased severity that I, well, comment is needless. I did not go again, for I found that my mother was indeed a woman of her word. Whether or not George Cleveland and his wife were members of the church at the time, we sojourned with them, and before Father and Hi Uncle Hiram reached us there, I do not know. It is certain they received the refugees from Missouri with kindly welcome and, so far as mother and her children were concerned, gave them excellent care. I remember him as a middle-sized man with a kind face and soft, even voice. 
I do not remember hearing him speak harshly or exhibit any temper or impatience. His wife was a fine-looking woman, approaching middle age and well qualified for the cares and labours of a farmer's wife. The winter passed away and mother heard from father at intervals more or less extended until April 22nd, 1839, when he and Uncle Hiram reached Quincy and their waiting families after an escape from the unlawful custody of men who conducted them about from one county to another on an unassigned mittimus. Next section, commerce. These are his memories of a child being in commerce. I recall but few incidents of the journey from Quincy to Commerce in Hancock County, some 50 miles up the river. I do remember that we stopped on the way at what I now believe was the Morley settlement near Lima. The record shows that Father and his family left Quincy May 9th, arrived at Commerce the following day and moved into a log house which is yet standing. This was known as the Hugh White residence and it was from Mr White that Father purchased it and the farm. It could not have been long after this that Grandfather Joseph Smith and Grandmother Lucy Smith reached the place and were for a time located nearby. In fact, I remember two places where Grandfather and Grandmother lived. One was a small log house on the west side of the frame attachment to the block house, built originally for purposes of safety as well as dwelling, for Indians were still occupying the districts east and west of the Mississippi. The other was but a few rods away across the main street and was a double house with a half story above. My memory of dates is so imperfect that I cannot now say just when they occupied these houses. I do remember that he died while they were living in the double log house on the east side of Main Street on the northwest corner of the block in which the Nauvoo house stands and across Water Street south from the Nauvoo mansion. With him at the time of his passing were grandmother and their daughters Sophronia and Lucy, the latter of whom in the summer preceding had become the wife of Arthur Millican. An incident connected with the events the event fixes the memory of these in my mind. I was in the habit of running in and out of their place as I did my own house, my own home, and was there when the folks were absorbed in grief over his passing. Aunt Lucy found fault with me because I was tearless and upbraided me, saying I was too hard-hearted to cry. I resented this and denied the accusation. When she asked me if I didn't feel bad about Grandfather's dying, I said, Yes, I do feel bad, for I will miss my grandfather, but you have said he is better off, his sufferings ended, and that he is in heaven where he will have no more pain and trouble. So why should I cry about that? I can't and I don't see how anyone can. It was my first acquaintance with death that I can remember. It was a good many years after that when grandmother died and then also a man grown, I could shed no tears. Another instance fixes in memory the residence of grandfather. It occurred one Sunday when the folks were at meeting on the hillside. The house was entered and two dollars, a pair of spectacles and a Bible was stolen. A young man by the name of Alred, some 17 or 18 years old, and a boy some younger, were convicted of this theft and Alred paid the penalty by breaking stone upon the road, a ball and chain attached to one of his legs. The burden of our Sunday school teacher's admonishments to his class for some time thereafter was in regard to the wickedness of stealing, holding up as he warned in the fate of this young man. 
I knew Al Red quite well and believe that he behaved himself, himself afterwards. He removed in the fall of winter of 1846-47 when the exodus took place. We were comfortably located in our log house. I recall there was a spring nearby from which we obtained our drinking water. It issued out from under the hillside on the bank of the river, not far from a large oak tree which stood for many years after the city was evacuated by the saints. The Hugh White farm was a veritable plantation. There were the usual adjuncts of a log smokehouse and a log stable. Besides the double log house referred to in which Grandfather Smith had lived, between our house and the water there was on the bank of the river a small log building consisting of one room with a cellar underneath. It had evidently been occupied by someone dependent for work upon the family that had lived in the main building. Not far from the latter and yet within the bounds of the farm, there was quite an area of land which was shallow in soil and covered a loose limestone formation. Though a veritable swamp, this land remained for quite for some years as pasturage for our cows. When father came to Quincy from his imprisonment in Missouri, he brought with him a fine saddle horse, a dark chestnut sorrel stallion named Medley, which he had obtained from the men who guarded them at the time of their escape. I'm going to stop there for a moment and tell you that Joseph Smith III really was passionate about horse, um, about animals, especially horses. So you will find that he really had a love of horses. Um, from circumstances which I remember, in connection therewith, I have reason to believe it had been purchased at a good figure. Whether or not Uncle Hiram had also secured a horse, I cannot now say, but I remember that after the passage of some time, two men came to the house to see father, one of whom was named John Brassfield. I understand at the time that these men had come for the purpose of collecting the amount of the bribe for which they had allowed the prisoners to escape. I cannot fix this date in memory other than to say it was after the erection of what was called the Red Brick Store, located in the west end of the block on which our house stood. I remember hearing at the time that the amount of money to be paid to these men was $800 and that the, the horse father had used was to be replaced by another. I remember the cream-coloured or clay bank horse which father purchased from one Amos Davis for the purpose of turning over to those men from Missouri. They were closeted with father and one or two others for the afternoon and part of the evening and departed the next day. This house into which we moved on reaching Commerce was located about three quarters of a mile down the river from Commerce Landing, a point where a number of houses, warehouses and stores had been built. Standing close upon the bank of the river, which at this point ran almost due east, a little house occupied a very handsome site and was a central habitation of a farm of 135 acres, purchased, as I have stated, from the river man named Hugh White. The times were busy ones. The winter had not proved, for all its afflictions, too severe for the many saints who came into the place to secure locations and to build shelters for their families. A period of great activity ensued, and history shows that among the buildings erected at the settlement called Commerce, there were 
three frame houses, one of stone and two of blocks. This town was located at a point on the river known as Upper Landing for the reason that at low water in the river the landings further down became impracticable for use. A little way below Commerce began what was known as the Des Moines Rapids or Lower Rapids. They extended down the river for a distance of 12 miles and ended at Keokuk on the Iowa side. Halfway down from this upper landing stood the residence of Dr. Isaac Galland, a two-storey house in excellent condition. A little over a quarter of a mile further down was the group of houses on the Hugh White farm, among them the one which had become our home. About the same distance still further down and east of our home was the farm of Davidson Hibbard. I do not remember the names of many of these settlers, nor very much of the details of the influx of the saints, the laying out of the city and the bustle and confusion attendant thereupon. There existed among the people a community of interest of such a character that with the excellent natural resources of the place, timber in plenty and friendly help at hand, there was little real suffering. Outside of those afflictions which resulted from the privations to which they had been subjected during the persecutions in Missouri and those they had encountered in their flight from that state, in the inclement weather of winter and early spring, those who reached Hancock County were fairly comfortable and happy. Spring soon brought its ever-recurring hope and promise, and being by nature industrious and by necess necessity compelled to seek support from the soil, a great deal was done by the settlers that first summer toward making themselves self-sustaining. In the fall that... In the fall, an organisation of branch or stake or central place of gathering was effected. Excuse my stumbling over my words. Um, William Marks was made president and members of a high council were appointed. Father made arrangements to visit Washington, the capital of the United States, for he, Sidney Rigdon, Elias Higby and others were commissioned by a conference of the people to present to Congress the matter of the expulsion of the saints from Missouri, lay before that body their claims for indemnity and ask for redress of wrong and remuneration for losses sustained by individuals in the persecutions they had suffered under the exterminating order of Governor Lyburn or Lilburn W. Boggs. Next um, section, malaria. We're still in chapter one, um, but these are the memories of um, Joseph Smith III during his childhood. It was during father's absence on this matter of business that the severest trial of the season was put upon my mother. The breaking up of the ground, the exhalations from the swamp, the insufficient supply of good water, and the privations usual to pioneering resulted in an epidemic of malarial fever, which took the forms of chills, chill fever and ague. Many were ill. I remember that mother filled her house with the sick, who were brought to her from near and far, giving them shelter, treatment and nursing care. When the house overflowed, she stretched out in the yard east of the house the tent, which had served us as a shelter on our journey to Nauvoo. There were days during this time when our house was thus made into a hospital 
but there was no one to carry water to the fever-burned patients but myself, then about seven years old. I used to trudge up and down the hill between the house and the spring, carrying a small bucket and making the trip frequently in order that the water might be cool for those who drank of it. There was among the patients a young fellow by the name of John Huntington, son of Father Huntington, who married the widow of Edward Partridge, the bishop who had died of a broken heart through the persecutions in Missouri. The Huntington family had raised that summer, among other things, some long-necked gourds, sometimes called calabashes. For one of these, John had fashioned a drinking cup with a handle, but of course did not bring it with him when he was conveyed ill to mother's hospital. In the paroxysms of his chills, he would lie with his head and body covered, shivering from head to foot. As I brought water to his bedside and offered it to him, he snarled out, Why don't you put the handle in? Not understanding, I thought he was out of his head, and since he was such a big, strong fellow, I was a little afraid of him. I called to mother, busy preparing food and other attentions for the sick. She came and asked what she, he wanted. When he said he wanted a drink, she answered, Well, Joseph is here with the water. Why don't you drink? At this, he again mumbled something about putting the handle in. Mother took hold of the bed cover and turned it down so she could see his face and said, Why, John, what is the matter with you? He looked a bit sheepish and said, Oh, I just forgot. I thought I was at home and then told us about the gourd dipper. He had bored a hole through the end of the handle in such a way that when they brought in water, they would just lift the edge of his cover slightly and push the handle of the gourd into him. This, this he would place in his mouth and drink without having to be uncovered in his chills. It was a plausible contrivance and the explanation proved he was in his right mind. He, he uh, excuse me, sorry. Uh, we thought his ingenious expedient a good one. The gourd was secured and often used thereafter. I have no idea. <laughs> I'm trying to picture. Um, some of the words that I used obviously are from a different era, and some of the words are words that I. I'm unfamiliar with or I can't picture in my mind but we are reading from an era of over a hundred odd years ago um, so I hope you can bear with me and um, picture for yourself um, the um, explanations or the descriptions. This same John Huntington went west at the general migration of those who followed Brigham Young but after a time he became disgusted with what he saw and heard there. He returned to northern New York where he had been raised and from whence his family had, had come first to Missouri and then to Illinois. I met him in Nauvoo on this return journey to the east. He was dressed in rather rough clothing, having tramped with an occasional lift near nearly the entire distance from Utah. He had nothing but his he had nothing but the clothes he wore, a cup made from a coconut shell which hung to the strap with which he was belted, and a common butcher knife. He had one dollar in money, I believe in addition to the above-named possessions. He went to Watertown, New York, met some of his family and remained there during the rest of his life. He was a man of ingenuity, 
had invented a system of stencils which, with other notions, he used to sell. Together with some teaching of penmanship, these sales afforded him some income as he needed. I corresponded with him for quite a number of years. He married at Watertown, but I never heard anything about his family after his death. Mother had ten or twelve patients that fall, for whom she cared principally by the labour of her own hands. Although we children, including our sister Julia, who was quite small for her age, tried to help her as best we could, she managed to keep well herself and to live through the strenuous trial. In the language of the scripture, not one was lost, nor did she or her children suffer, a gratifying result chiefly attributable to her wise care and excellent administration of affairs. Whether at that time or later I cannot say, but there came from the East, New York, I think, an allopathic doctor by the name of John M. Bernhizel. He was old enough to be grey and partially bald, a bachelor, an excellent and skilful physician, and very successful in treating the malarial diseases, which were then quite prevalent. The flat lying between the main street and the river, a few blocks north of us, was quite swampy and there were other places similar. The people who settled in such localities or along the river were subject to swamp fever, chill fever or fever anague. While proving serious in some cases, the affliction could usually be overcome by proper care and an obedience to the directions of a physician in regard to diet. Often, however, it lingered quite a long while before completely eradicated. I have a distant recollection of having chill fever I also remember the remedies I took for it, among them some pills called Sappington's pills. They were evidently made of wood fibres covered with a coating which was bitter to the taste. A treatment curious enough to provoke a smile now was in use at that time. These cleansing pills were given a short time before the next chill was due. The patient was required to take a remedy called Dover's powders. This was followed by drinking a strong concoction of what was called store tea. Looking back at it now, it seems that when the faith failed, people resorted to many strange remedies, things which would now be considered futile, if not absolutely dangerous to the life of the patient. <laughs> Sorry, um, he's very um, straight talking, Joseph Smith III. Two incidences in my experience with this disease come to mind. One occurred after father's death. I was slowly recovering from an attack of the fever and wanted something or other. There was no one about the house but mother, so I called her. When she failed to answer, I seemed to get frantic and got right out of bed. I was not strong enough to stand, however. My head whirled and I fell to the floor, calling out loudly as I did so. This is after his... Um, Joseph Junior, Joseph Smith Junior's death, so um, he would have been over the age of eleven um, at this time. Mother hurried to me, helped me back into bed, and told me I should not be so foolish, explaining that she had her work to do in addition to waiting on me, and that if she couldn't come at once, I should be patient and remember that she would do what she could for me just as soon as she could. The lesson was a good one, and I took it to heart. In two or three days, I seemed to be well enough to go out into the yard. It was a fine sunny day in the fall. A new fence had been built across the lot, extending down towards the stable and dividing the garden from the dooryard. It was an ordinary post and board fence, with a board nailed on the top, flatwise. 
I mounted this fence and undertook to walk this flatboard. As might be expected, I fell, struck a pile of rails that were stacked against the fence and rolled to the ground. Getting to my feet, I started at the house, but before I could reach it, I began shaking from head to foot from his severe attack of ague. Some time elapsed after that before I again reached a state of convalescence. At another and considerably later time, I had an attack while hung on persistently. Sorry, which hung on persistently. And in spite of all the remedies administered to relieve me, a couple of men from off the river came along, one of whom gave the name of Joseph Smith, a clerk on the steamer Tempest. They asked for a horse and buggy to convey them up to the hill portion of the city. They we Though we were keeping a hotel, we did not run a library, but we did have a mare called Cleopatra. She had been used by some of the young men during the troubles of 46 and had lately been ill. We had no buggy of our own, but there was one in the barn which belonged to a transient traveller. At the earnest importunities of these men, who said that they just wished to go up to the hill and back, and relying on their promise that they would drive the convalescent mare carefully and return her at noon, I obeyed mother's direction, harnessed Cleopatra and hitched her to the buggy. The young men drove away, but when noon arrived they did not. In the afternoon I saw the mare hitched in front of a grocery saloon kept by an Englishman named Hannah. It was located on the west side of Main Street, on the second block north of the mansion house. Not feeling well myself, I sent Wesley Knight, an assistant we had about the hotel and stable, to see about the animal. Presently, he returned with the report that the men would be down in a few minutes. For some reason, I felt mistrustful, so took a stroll up toward the salon. Just before I reached it, those two men, accompanied by another, came up, jumped into the buggy, put whip to the mare and raced down the hill. As they passed me, I shook my fist at them and shouted that they could just send the horse back, for it wouldn't be safe or healthy for them to bring. Or they, let me repeat that. For it wouldn't be safe or healthy for them to bring her back. I was furiously angry. Just closing my 15th year and being a rather lusty fella for my age, I fancied they were inclined to view my threat with respect, for they did indeed send the animal back by someone else and never ever returned to pay for their use. Um, once again, the language from the past, um, <laughs> lusty, um, he's obviously referring to his build and his um, passion um, towards um, these men um, trying to keep hold of his horse um as i said he's um has passion for horses i got this benefit out of the incident however my anger and indignation were so great i found myself entirely relieved of my attack of ague the reader may think these statements very curious but nevertheless they are true a jar received in a fall from a fence brought on one siege of chill fever fever and getting extremely angry had the surprising effect of curing me of another. These are all quite trivial incidents, but they have in a sense left an impression upon my life. The gradual disappearance of wild soil, the cultivation of gardens and fields, and clearing the swamps of brush 
finally resulted in establishing on a firmer basis the health of the inhabitants of Nauvoo. Next section, bits of memory. Bits of memory about some of our neighbours in those early days come to view. Hugh White, from whom father purchased the farm, had married a daughter of David Hibbard, who lived but a little further down the river. At the time we moved in, however, his family was broken up through the desertion of his wife. She became the wife of someone else, lived in the south a while, and then came back to Nauvoo after abandoning her second husband. She may have contracted other alliances, one of which I think was with Porter Rockwell, but she finally married a man by the name of Tilton, with whom she was living at the time of her death. She was quite a beautiful woman, lived for a time in the house built by Orson Hyde and later further down Main Street in a frame building remodelled by a brother from St. Louis by the name of Shaw. Her given name was Emmeline. And when she died, after her successive ventures in the matrimonial market, lonely, unfortunate and unhappy, she left an adopted daughter who became quite an estimable um, well, citizen of the place. Davidson Hibbard was a very kindly man whose family consisted of his wife, a son William, and three and three daughters, Elvira, Emmeline and Lavinia. Lavinia? Uh, Elvira became the wife of Dr. Weld, a physician of the old or allopathic school, and the first one I remember as being a practitioner in the place. Afterwards, Elvira left Dr. Weld and became the wife of Amos Davis. Again, she changed her partner and married Putnam Yates. Deserting him, she took up her fortunes with a fourth man by the name of Peter or Pierre Helm, with whom she lived until her death. Mr. Hibbard's youngest daughter married Milton M. Morrill, a relative of the Honourable Morrill of Maine, of Tariff Menu, if my recollections are correct. She was a woman of good character, maintained an excellent reputation, and was one of the leading ladies of Nauvoo. She may be living now in the city or its fixing vicinity with sons and daughters. Her husband, when she married him, was a young lawyer from the east who pitched his legal fortunes at Nauvoo and became one of the leading lawyers and politicians of the, of the uh, county. On the democratic side of the political fence, he was sent to the legislator once, but finally became too fond of his cups, wasted his wife's patrimony as well as his own earnings and died a drunkard. Besides his widow, he left two sons, Ernest and Milton, and a daughter, a very pretty young woman. The oldest son, I believe, escaped the snares of intoxication under which his father had gone down. I've lost track of the younger one, but recall on occasion him visiting a place of resort with Mr. Morrill on a matter of business connected with a suit before me as justice of the peace. I saw the boy sitting at a table playing cards with a companion, glasses of whiskey standing about on the table. As we passed, Mr. Morrill said, Why, Mr. Milton, what are you doing here? I thought you were at work. The lad looked up, shamefaced, but answering nothing. As we passed out, Mr. Morrill expressed regret at finding his son in such a place and in such employment. I suggested, what could you expect, Mr. Morrill, from the example you have set the boy? And with a sigh, he answered, yes, Joseph, I know it. 
Mr Murrell became identified with a good many events and occurrences connected with our family after my mother's second marriage, as will appear later on. In passing, I may say that the example set in the community by Mr Murrell was one of the things that made me a temperance lecturer. He was a man of brilliant intellect. Excuse me, I'll start again. He was a man of brilliant intellect, an excellent lawyer and a good pleader at the bar. And before a jury, although he became a bit unscrupulous about the methods he employed in his practice before the courts, I will not say that those methods were dishonest in the strict sense of the term, but rather that they were in a measure tricks of the trade, which to me seemed unjustifiable. Intoxicating liquors often turn otherwise excellent men into questionable paths. Farmer Hibbard was among the first acquaintances we made upon moving to the Hugh White farm. Soon after we came, mother purchased a cow from him and it became largely my task to look after it. I well remember the appearance of this cow and her disposition, which was very erratic. She was very hard to milk and becoming tired with my efforts to do so would break away from me and run back home to Mr Hibbard's place. Once I chased her back twice before I succeeded in getting her milked, after which we tied her up at milking time. We retained her for many years, notwithstanding the frequent trouble she gave us in various ways. The acquaintance early formed with Mr Hibbard and his family continued pleasantly through the years. He was often called Deaf Hibbard because of the apparent difficulty of his hearing. The illness which finally ended his life lasted for several months and those in attendance upon him became somewhat worn and weary. I was requested to visit him and wait upon him as he had inquired at times for me and said he would like to see me. One day I sat by his side outside as he lay on a mattress in the shade of the house to escape the heat indoors. He seemed to be asleep and I read as I watched him. Suddenly he turned and said, come here, Joseph. I went over close to him and he asked in a low voice, is there anyone near? I said, no, Mr. Hibbard, speaking in the loud tone I had been in the habit of using when addressing him. Very soberly, he said, Joseph, I can hear you very well. When there is no one near, when there is no one, yeah, you... Oh, it's a bit confusing. Sorry, I'll read that again. Very soberly, he said, Joseph, I can hear you very well. When there is no one, yeah, you needn't speak so loud to me. When somebody is about, then speak loud. Once again, this language is from the past, so I don't really understand that um, way of um, pronunciation. <laughs> I sat by his side for an hour in easy conversation, carried on in ordinary tones. He told me much of his life, assured me of his regard and interest in me, and said he hoped I would live to be a good and useful man. I did not ask him for an explanation concerning his uh, supposed deafness, for I thought I understood it. His wife was an arrant scold, and he had evidently quite early concluded it was better to go through life with the reputation of being a deaf man than to be worried by her scolding. I had been present on occasions when she was storming and had noticed the quiet demeanour of the man as if he did not hear her. I concluded he had been shamming for a good many years. I never betrayed his confidence either by failing to address him loudly 
when others were present or forgetting to address him coyly when we were alone. His son William grew up a wild, rollicking young man, full of frolic and fun, but given to drink. Many a time I saw him coming home from town, racing his horse to keep ahead of the marshal. Several times I remember he was arrested and fined until his father's patience and kindness were severely tried. During the gold excitement in California in 49 and 50, he left Nauvoo for the gold mines. He succeeded in getting through to California, but there, unfortunately and evidently, in a drunken frolic, he stole a horse. Under the regulations of the mining country at that time, such an act was considered a grave crime and punishable by death. The usual vigilante court was summoned. He was tried, found guilty and sentenced to death. The court gave him his choice between hanging or being shot. He chose the latter, sold his head to a rising young doctor for a quart of whiskey, which he promptly drank and in the stupor that followed, paid the penalty um, adjudged against him. Wow. He left a wife and son in Nauvoo. The wife married secondly, Isaac Saunders, the son, William by name, grew up in the community, kept away from the dram shop studied law and achieved the reputation of a good citizen. He married the daughter of Bryant Whitfield for a long time constable in Nauvoo and died in middle life, having maintained his integrity and honour as a man to the last. Um, I'm going to make some comments now. Um, These are just random bits of memory of um, Joseph Smith III as he goes through um, the years of his life and um, pieces things together um that was quite that um that death wow so that is um that's the time of of that that was the uh, the thing that happened back um at that time in those days um so um joseph smith the third trained to be a lawyer so you're so where he mentions about lawyers and things um he became a lawyer so bear that in mind um he uh he believed in justice he wanted justice and it served him well um as you'll find out um later on in his life um that is the end of chapter one and um the beginning of chapter um, two is on page eight, which I will um, share in the next episode. Thank you for listening.